Looking this morning at Psalm 147. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your, your God, O Zion. For He has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. And He fills you with the, fittest, uh, the finest wheat. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out His hail like morsels. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His word and melts them. He causes His wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for His judgments... They have not known them. Praise the Lord. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. <clears throat> oh Lord God in heaven, we uh, do praise You and thank You, Father, that we once again have this opportunity to come before You to study Your word. And as we come to this uh, particular uh, psalm this morning, we pray that You would even, uh, even now with Your Spirit be going forth, preparing our hearts to receive Your word, that we would have understanding, that we would have insight, that we would be challenged to be mindful of all the reasons that we have to truly praise You and to worship Your holy name in spirit and in truth. And so we ask now for Your blessing upon Your Word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, in the last five psalms of the Psalter, they make up a glorious doxology that really concludes the entire book of Psalms. And again, doxology just, doxology just being a, a lifting up of praise to, uh, to the Lord. And each of these last five Psalms begin and end with praise the Lord or hallelujah. And we considered that uh, last time. As they call us to exalt and glorify the name of the Lord. In Psalm 146, the focus of praise was on the fact that the Lord alone is our sure and certain hope, the one in whom we can truly trust. Princes and the sons of men 
will fail and they will disappoint us. But the Lord God will never disappoint us. He secured for us not only hope in this life, but even the everlasting hope in the life to come. Well, here in Psalm 147, the focus of praise is on the wonderful truth that the Lord is our most good and gracious caretaker. That is, God is a God who cares. He cares for His creation, and He especially cares for His own special people whom He's called into a covenant relationship with Him, even us, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we don't know for certain the occasion upon which this psalm was written, it seems to fit the time after the 70 years the Jews spent in captivity in Babylon. And now that the Lord has brought them back to the holy city of Jerusalem, where they'd been revived and strengthened by the Lord to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. In fact, as you read through Psalm 147, it fits the context of the rededication of the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 12, verse 27, where we read this. Now, that at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And so we see the themes of rebuilding, restoration, thankfulness, and God's wonderful care are pronounced throughout this entire psalm. But the psalm is arranged in such a way that there's, there's this back and forth between highlighting how God cares for creation in general and how He specifically and specially cares for His people. Now this challenges us to consider, look, if we're going to praise God for how wonderfully He cares for His creation, well, how much more so ought He then to be praised for how graciously and abundantly He cares for His very own people? And not just for the Jews after the exile, but even for His people today, even the church, yes, even us. Even the Living Way Reformed Presbyterian Church here in Bryan, Texas. God truly cares for us. And so we ought to then praise Him. Now this psalm is easily divided into three sections, with each section beginning with a call to praise the Lord and then showing how the Lord is a most gracious caretaker. But in verse 1, After the initial hallelujah, we find three important descriptions of praise. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. First note that it is is good to sing praises to our God. Praise is good activity. It's good for us as it draws our thoughts away from ourselves and and directs them toward the one whom we're praising. It's good uh, for us because singing praise can often change our mood, right? Lifting our our spirits and and our our heart, uh, filling our heart with joy and gratitude. (laughs) Try singing praise to God 
when your heart is downcast or when you're just in a, in a grumpy mood. It's difficult to do and, and to remain grumpy for long. Right? And that's how this praise is, is good for us. It lifts our souls. Right? Singing feeds joy. And we know that a joyful heart is, is good medicine. Indeed, we see this transformation worked out even in the many psalms of lament that we find in the Psalter. Right, where the psalmist is, is being persecuted or he's suffering or he's, in, he's just distraught. And after he lays his complaint before the Lord and recalls God's attributes and, and the promises of God's word, well then his heart is, is lifted to, to confidence, to hope, and to trust. And often his heart is lifted even though his circumstances haven't yet changed. And yet, singing praise to the Lord lifts his heart and his spirits. And so truly, singing praise is good for us. Well, singing praise to God is also pleasant and good for others. Not only does this mean that the sound of of joyful hearts and lips giving praise to our God sounds most pleasant, as it surely does. And of course, the more voices joining in the chorus of praise, the more pleasant it sounds. Of course, this is one of the things that makes the worship of the Lord's Day such a delight. Right? The sweet-sounding praise that is offered up in sincerity and truth. And even though it may sometimes more be a joyful noise... It is still most pleasant to us and to others and to the Lord. But it's not just the sound of the voices or the melodies of the tunes that's pleasant. But even the very words themselves are pleasant. Especially when they are the words of God that are offered back to Him in praise. You see, when we sing the Psalms, we actually serve and minister to one another through our praise. Indeed, this is the truth that the Apostle Paul sets forth in Colossians 3 verse 16 where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now we've noted before that the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of the Psalter are ultimately the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? They speak about Him and they are spoken by Him as the Word of God come in the flesh. And when we sing these words of Christ in worship, in our praise to God, we're actually also teaching and admonishing one another. We're building and encouraging one another because the words that we sing are God's words and not the words of men. And they're accompanied not just with sincere hearts, voices, and, and the lips of the, fellowship, of the fellow worshipers, <clears throat> but they're also accompanied by the Holy Spirit, which also always goes forth with the Word of God, accomplishing His plan and His purpose for our good and His glory. And so it truly is pleasant to others 
when we sing praises to the Lord. But thirdly, we also acknowledge that praise is good, pleasant, and beautiful to the Lord himself. Now the word beautiful here also means comely or or fitting. And so it's not just that the fruit of our lips is beautiful and and a sweet-smelling offering of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, but it's also fitting. That is, it's the good and right thing to do. And it's the good and right thing to do and to sing praise to the Lord because He has commanded it. That is, the Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth, God commands that all His creation, both the inanimate things like the heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, we'll see that, Lord willing, when we look at Psalm 148, that they cry out and praise to the Lord. As well as the animate creatures, animals, and the, the, uh, the fish of the sea, creeping things, and especially the creature that God created after His own image, mankind. That God commands that all His creation acknowledge Him and glorify Him as the one true living God. Now we know that sin has distorted this charge, and the creature, mankind in particular, will often suppress the truth, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. But friends, the, God, the command of God remains for all creation. We are all called to worship Him and acknowledge Him with praise. And so it's good and fitting to praise Him because He's our Creator. But it's also good and fitting to praise the Lord because it's a way that we show our love and our gratitude to Him for all that He has done for us. Friends, I encourage you, and we'll we'll talk about some of these things, but just look back on your own lives and consider everything that God has done for you, that He has given you life, that He has given you, uh, of course, the new life in Christ through the forgiveness of sins, that He has given you the sure and certain hope of eternal life, that He has given you family, that He's provided for you, all these things that He has done for you, how do we show our gratitude to God? We show it to Him by keeping His commands. Right? That's what Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, we just consider that giving praise to God and acknowledging Him and glorifying Him is the command that God gives to all creation. And so we show our love and our gratitude to God when we sing praises to Him. And so singing praise to our great God is certainly fitting and beautiful. And it's God's gracious, tender, loving care for His people that the psalmist now lists as a key reason as to why we should sing His praise. Verses 2 and 3, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And then in verse 6, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. And here we see God's gracious care in in building up the holy city in Jerusalem. Again, after delivering them from their captors, He gathers His people to Himself. Those who were scattered, wounded, and humbled, He has now gathered together. As we noted, these words seem to fit the occasion of the rededication of the walls of Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah. 
<clears throat> now what's interesting is long before the exile into captivity, right? So long before Nehemiah's time, even long before the 70 years began when they were taken away, God, through the prophets, had been giving warnings to his people that if they persisted in their sin and in their idolatry, that he was going to bring judgment upon them, and that judgment was going to be that he was going to scatter them among the nations, and that he would even bring the temple and Jerusalem to ruins. Right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all were given this challenge, this prophecy to warn the people of God that judgment was coming if they did not turn away from their sin. And of course, this is precisely what happened. They did not uh, turn from their sin. They persisted in their immorality. They persisted in their idolatry. They didn't trust in the Lord. And even as we... uh, And they they trusted in, uh, in Egypt. In 586 B.C., The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came in, laid siege to the city. Many people starved. And then finally they they broke the city walls and they entered in. They destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. And they took many of their citizens into captivity where they remained for that long 70 years. The people of God were removed from the promised land. They were removed from the place where he chose to put his name and to build his temple. They were removed from his holy presence. But here's the amazing thing. Is that even at the very same time that the Lord was warning the people of this coming judgment. And warning them that they needed to turn and repent of their sins. He continuously offered the hope of restoration in similar words to what we find here in Psalm 147. For example, Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verse 12, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It's in the midst of You're going to be judged. You're going to be sent into captivity. God says, but I will come and I will gather to you together once again and restore you. I will preserve a faithful remnant. And then another example, Isaiah 61. The Lord has has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then verse 4, And they shall build the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Again, judgment's going to come. But there's this hope of, of restoration and rebuilding. And so all these promises <clears throat> now offered in remembrance in, in Psalm 147 as reasons to give praise to God because they have now come about. And it was all the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing through the leadership of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was the Lord's doing uh, that the Lord built up Jerusalem. 
and through Zerubbabel before him, who uh, before them who uh, worked to build up the temple. It was through the decree of the Persian king Cyrus that the exiles returned and were gathered together as the people of God in the land of their fathers. The Lord did that. And again, an amazing thing where in Isaiah, long before Cyrus was even born, God calls him by name. And this is the one who will bring my people back to their land. And now they're back. Their sins were forgiven. The offenses are covered over and healed. And the worship of God in the temple was restored. But these words of Psalm 147, and the words which they echo from the prophet Isaiah, especially when we consider Isaiah chapter 61, they also, though, point forward to a greater building up and a greater time of renewal, healing, and comfort. Because they find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to build His church. In fact, Jesus quotes from those first four verses of Isaiah 61. And in Luke chapter 4, when He's um, preaching His first sermon in the synagogue, He he, uh, goes, He reads from the scroll. He reads that passage from Isaiah 61. And then after reading... He boldly declares in Luke chapter 4, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Not just in the time of Nehemiah, but now, more fully, in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, the appointed Messiah who has come because the Spirit has been poured out upon Him to deliver the captives and to restore the people and to rebuild them into a holy city, even into the church. And so the words of the prophet and the words of the psalmist are also then given to us in Christ. Right? And they remind us of the great care that the Lord has shown to us in calling us to Himself, in binding up our wounds and healing our hearts that were broken by sin. And Jesus has promised that He'll build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against Him. And this He has done as He even now continues to gather His elect from the four corners of the earth. Even each of us, He's gathered together from different places, bringing us together here, outcasts in the world and rebellion against our Creator. And Christ has now graciously gathered us to Himself, even here in this place at this time, to be one people, to be one body in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved God, truly the Lord cares for you. He cares for this congregation, even in the midst of various challenges and setbacks that we may face. The Lord cares for us. Jesus cares for us. He cares for His church. And He cares for His bride, whom He laid down His own life for, that He might wash us of sin that He might cleanse us and purify us so that we would then be presented perfectly and holy and blameless in His sight when He returns again on that last great day. Beloved of God, we have great reason to praise the Lord because He cares for us. 
verse 4 and 5 seem a bit disruptive to the flow of thought here as the psalmist turns from this glorious focus on God's care for His people now speaking about God's knowledge of the stars. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Now, What's the connection here? Well, as we noted before, the psalmist does this throughout as if to challenge us to consider, look, if God does this for the creation, well then how much more so for us, for His beloved people? And so following on the very heels of God's care, speaking about God's care for His people and rebuilding and restoring them, the example is given of the vastness of the heavens and the stars that fill the night sky, which to us, of course, are innumerable. But to an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God, He knows the exact number of them. Indeed, He's even named them. Each and every one. He knows them by name because He is the one who created them. He is the one who has set each and every one of them in its perfect place. Beloved of God, if God has such a vast, intimate knowledge of the stars, which we can't even begin to count, well, how much more so does He have intimate knowledge of us, the finite creature that we are? Indeed, God's care for us begins with the very fact that He knows us. He's created us for a reason and a purpose that He knows. He knows the limits and the weaknesses of our creatureliness, which is why He condescends and, and uses words in, this, in, the, his, uh, in the Scriptures to help us better understand because we can't comprehend Him in all His fullness and all His glory. Because the one who knows and, and, and has numbered and has, knows the names of each and every star, which we can't count, is infinite. And yet He knows each and every one of us. In its finest detail, He knows us. He knows our concerns. He knows the burdens that we carry around on our, on our shoulders and our, upon our hearts. He knows our aches and our pains. He knows our sorrow and our griefs. He knows our, uh, our weaknesses to temptation and sin. He knows us. And He so cares for us that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to secure that needed salvation and forgiveness of sins for us. God didn't send Jesus, His Son, to die on the cross for the stars. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for each and every one of you. For us. Because He knows us. And He loves us. And it's incomprehensible because we also know ourselves. And yet God is rich in grace and mercy. And He truly cares for us. Truly. 
we should praise the Lord because He so wonderfully and graciously cares for us. Well, in verses 7 through 11, we have another reason that's given as to why we should praise the Lord, our caretaker. Because He graciously and abundantly provides for us. And so we ought then to give thanks to Him in our praise, as we see in in verse 7. Indeed, our praise ought to be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude as we uh, consider the Lord's blessing poured out upon us. And again, we're reminded that this is our God. This just isn't a being out there unattached from us. It is our God, the one who has called us into this covenant relationship that He is our God and we are His people. It is our God who created all things out of nothing by the word of His power in the space of six days. And it's our God who continues to sustain and provide all that He has created. This is demonstrated in verses 8 and 9, that who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains, He gives to the beasts its food and to the young ravens that cry. And here in these verses we see this progression of of the the wonderful design. The wonderful design of God's creation and, and the wisdom on display here that shows His gracious care as He sustains everything that He's created. You see, God created the clouds. And what do the clouds do? Well, they hold moisture. Where does that moisture come? It comes, uh, it's been drawn up into those clouds through uh, the heat of the sun that causes evaporation from the seas and the oceans that cover 70% of the earth. And then when those clouds become heavy with enough moisture, what happens? They break forth, sending the rain down upon the earth. And what does the rain do? The rain causes the grass and the plants to grow on the mountains and in the fields. And then what happens? Well, these plants then provide food for the beasts of the field and even the birds of the air so that even a young raven, a small insignificant creature, is is provided by the Lord's gracious, caring hand. It's truly mind-blowing when you consider it, and when it really ought to swell your hearts with praise to God, how wonderful and how wise and awesome He is. This doesn't happen by chance. It happens according to God's deliberate purpose. But the wisdom of God's creative design and the power with which He created them Amazing to us as it is, it's nothing to God. Indeed, verse 10, though it truly glorifies God that He created a horse with magnificent power and strength, right? That a horse can can pull weight uh, much greater than itself. And it can also run with with great speed and and just with majestic beauty. But the Lord doesn't delight in those things. They glorify Him, yes, but He doesn't delight in them. It's not what especially pleases Him. And even the wonderful creation that is mankind, right? the the intricate way in which we're designed, that we've been given the ability to reason and and a conscience to know uh, right and wrong. And we've been created in the very image of God, and He's enabled mankind to do many great things. 
But the appearance of man, the strength of man, and the accomplishments of man are nothing to God. Again, they, they glorify Him, and they ought to glorify Him, but He takes no delight in man's displays of power. No, the special delight of the, of the God who created all things and who graciously cares for and sustains all that He's created. His special delight we see in verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His mercy. He takes no delight in the strong or the proud. His delight is in the lowly, the meek, and the humble, the one who fears Him with a holy reverence, the one who acknowledges in his own heart, I am but a creature, but God is my Creator, and therefore I must humble myself before Him, and I must worship and praise His name alone, not my own name, not the name of someone else, but of the Lord God alone I worship, and glorify and serve Him. That is the one in whom the Lord delights. Beloved of God, the Lord takes delight in you, in His people, in the church. And if He delights in you, well then surely He will provide for you. Right? And this was the, the lesson that Jesus uh, taught this gracious care and provision of God to His disciples when they were worried about how they're going to survive if they left everything and followed after Jesus. Right? How are we going to survive? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 6, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is, yes, you are. In fact, they would be even made more valuable because Christ is going to die for them. And so those who truly humble themselves before the Lord and trust in Him for salvation need not worry about the things of this life. Because the Lord delights in providing for you. And all that you need to serve and glorify Him. Look how He cares for the, the young raven. And everything that's involved. How much more so will He truly care for you, His beloved, for whom Christ died. The final section of the psalm is again introduced by a reminder to praise the Lord. And this time the fact that God is a covenant God. And he ought to be praised for his word and especially his promises to his people. Verse 12 and 13, the covenantal nature of praise is on display as those who belong to God, who, who claim him to be their God, ought to praise him. The restoration and rebuilding that the Jews were celebrating after their return from exile was again a fulfillment of promises, which as we considered God made Long before, even when he was warning them of coming judgment, he made these promises through the prophets. In fact, even long before that, even long before their time of rebellion, long before 
David sat on the throne when Israel was a united nation uh, who was faithful in serving God. Even before that, back when God first entered into a covenant with His people, when He first delivered them out of the land of Egypt, all the way back then, at the time of the Exodus, God foretold a time when they were going to rebel against Him. And even then, He also promised that if they would turn from their sin and repent, that He would be faithful to restore them and bring them back. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 and 3, we read this, When you return to the Lord, so He's already said that you're going to rebel against Me. And then this is what comes after. This is the promise. When you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And then in verse 5, Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. All the way back in Deuteronomy, when they just came out of Egypt, God's saying, look, there's going to be a time way in the future when you're going to rebel, and when you do, when you repent, I will restore you. And it will be even greater than what your fathers would have enjoyed. And so now in Psalm 147, again, this covenant promise is, is remembered and, and praised as now having been fulfilled. Right? The gates of the city have been strengthened. The, the families have, been, have become prosperous. Peace has come. And there's bountiful provision to the people of God. Even they're eating the finest of wheat. These thoughts of God's fulfilled promises having been spoken long ago and now fulfilled, lead the psalmist to make one last comparison between God's care for the creation and His care for His people, the church. In verse 15, 18, God speaks and sends forth His commands throughout the earth, and things happen. Now obviously this begins at the very beginning, back when God said, let there be, and there was, right? God, God speaks and things happen. But instead of the creative power of God's word going forth, highlighted here in the psalm is the sustaining power of His word. And He sends forth the snow, the ice, hail, and even the cold wind by His powerful command. And then by His very same word, warmth comes and it melts everything away. The wind blows and the water flows down from the mountains, giving power to streams and rivers, filling the lakes and the oceans. All this by God's command. And again, it starts that cycle with back to the clouds again that He mentioned earlier. Indeed, this sustaining work of His powerful word is part of God's general revelation. Right? The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so we see that the power and the glory of God are declared to all 
through what God has created and how He continues even to providentially sustain all that He's created. It's declared to all. But again, as we know, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 1, that sinful man suppresses this knowledge and worships and serves the creature rather than the Creator. And yet here we see that such hard men are held without excuse. Because God has so clearly revealed Himself, they will be held accountable. This then is reason to praise the Lord. Because He has so revealed Himself to all creation. But how much does God truly care for His people, the church? Though He generally reveals Himself to all through creation, He's only revealed Himself in a most special way to His people, showing them the utmost and greatest care possible. Verse 19 and 20, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt with us with any nation. And as for His judgments... They have not known them. God revealed Himself to Israel in a special way. In a way that He did not reveal Himself to the other nations. We noted before that God takes special delight in those who, who fear Him and trust in His name for salvation. Here we see that He so delights in His people. The people that He chose before the foundation of the world and called to Himself in time. He delights in them. By giving them His law and His word. So that they might be the chief benefactors of its promises and of its blessings. Not because they deserved it. But because God was gracious and merciful and chose them. Again, this election of Israel was according to the sovereign choice and the good pleasure of God in order to bring glory to His name. And this He has surely done. And especially now, the the people are enjoying it as they've been restored to the land according to the promises of God's Word. And so as as the chosen covenant people of God, they're rejoicing and giving thanks, praising the Lord's name. Because He has given these promises to them. And yet, as much as Israel was privileged to be entrusted with the oracles of God, as Paul says in Romans 3.2, as well as the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, as Paul says in Romans 9, 4. They were given this special revelation so that in time, they might actually then be a blessing to the nations and be a witness to the Gentiles as God had first promised to Abraham, right? When God first made those covenant promises to Abraham, you're going to be a great nation, I'm going to give you a land, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations, to the Gentiles. Well, we see that God made them a great nation, He gave them a land, and they even brought them back to the land. Well, where does the, the blessing to the Gentiles come? Well, that blessing and witness would come about most fully in the Word of God coming in the flesh and dwelling among them. That is, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved and cared for His people that He revealed Himself to them, even to us, through His own Son, 
and through the good news of the gospel that Jesus would accomplish when he gave himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins and died on the cross. So that we who were once enemies of God, we who were once estranged from the promises of God and outside of his covenant people, so that we might now be gathered into the fold of his new covenant people, the church. He gathers his people from the four corners of the earth, healing your brokenness and forgiving your sin. He builds up the new Jerusalem, the church, according to his covenant promises. He cares for you, knowing your every need. He provides for you, and He speaks continually to to you through His Spirit, accompanying His Word as it's read and proclaimed and sung. Showing you all these wonderful reasons, and challenging each of you to praise His name. Beloved of God, sing hallelujah then, and praise the Lord, our caretaker, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word, the challenge set before us to truly give praise to you because you are our great caretaker. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are of no consequence. We are of a little strength. And yet you are so gracious and merciful to us, even to this congregation of your people that you have called us together called us from various places, called us from sin and darkness and the bondage of sin. And you have called us to be one in Christ Jesus. And we pray that as we've been entrusted with these glorious promises and the gospel truth, that we'd be faithful being witnesses, declaring that truth, so that others might also be uh, come and join with us. And we do pray, Lord, that you would open to us a door of opportunity where the gospel will be declared and that we would even be overwhelmed by your blessing upon us. Not because of how wonderful we are, how great we are, but simply because you love us and you care for us and you provide for us. Father, we just praise you and thank you for this reminder and we pray especially that we would you would apply these truths to our hearts by your spirit that we would truly hear your word as it is read and proclaimed and sung and that would be challenged by it and admonished by it that we would be built up to be faithful witnesses for your glory father we pray for these things And above all, we pray that your name would be lifted up and glorified in our midst. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.